Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and beyond. We are in the process of building a human library of immigrant stories, and we have another amazing story for you today. Her name is Munashe Kaseki. Welcome, Munashe. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast so if you don't mind telling us a bit about your professional background and uh, who is Manashe? I feel like the professional background question should be easy, but nowadays it feels like a trick question for me. <laughs> but I am, by profession, I'm a pharmacist. I have a doctorate degree in pharmacy and I work right now at a pharmacy startup. I'm the senior director of operations and essentially I help make sure that all of the medications that patients order are being filled correctly uh, and being delivered to the patient homes. So think of the company that I work for almost as DoorDash or like an Uber, but for your prescription medication delivery. So that's like my core background. However, I just recently started to pivot more into writing and publishing and I have a new book out. So nowadays I feel like the intro of my professional background should be I'm a writer or I'm an author. And I think we'll probably spend a lot more time in this episode talking about that side of my professional background. Okay. Awesome. And a little bit about your personal life. That's always very important. We are not all our jobs, right? Yeah. (laughs) So what is a little bit about your personal life, if you don't mind sharing? So I'm single. I live in San Francisco. Most of my family still lives back in Zimbabwe. So my parents, nieces and nephews and so forth. I do go back to Zimbabwe to visit usually every other year. And outside of the COVID years, they would come visit me every other year as well. So typically would see each other at least once a year. I love to read all kinds of literature. I love the outdoors. Uh, Just with where I live right now, I have plenty of opportunity to go hike. I also am a big tennis fan. I love watching tennis. Uh, With Serena's last few matches, I like booked tickets for every time she won a match, I just booked more tickets. I was at the US Open and I followed all three of her matches. I also love to play tennis. That's kind of what comes to mind right now, but again, happy to elaborate if you have any other specific things. Sure. As we go along, more of this will come out. Yeah. I tried to share a little bit for me, I'm doing a little bit of a switch up for my own presentation as well, because we tend to start with our jobs Mm -hmm. and really our personal life is such a big part of that space because 
that's our grounding, our grounding, you know, our foundation. And then we move into work. And so a lot of times we just jump into the professional work environment with, and that's just part of who we are as people. So I, I like to get a flavor of that too. So thank you for introducing yourself. And you mentioned that you're from Zimbabwe. Is your family, are they originally from Zimbabwe or from somewhere else? What's your family's origination story? As far as I know, they are from Zimbabwe. I don't know how many generations we've been, but there's no family stories of like, oh, we migrated from somewhere else and ended up in Zimbabwe. So as far back as you know, we can trace our lineage and my dad's pretty good at tracing it. He can probably go like, you know, four generations above him. They have always uh, lived in in Zimbabwe. And of course, the country's changed a lot ever since. It was Rhodesia before 1980. And yeah, I guess boundaries and like country boundaries weren't always defined the way they are in present day. But more accurately, I guess I'm from, I don't know what the right word would be, tribe, I guess, uh, of like Shauna people. So instead of necessarily saying I'm Zimbabwean, I am Shauna and my ancestors have always been Shauna people. Okay. Thank you for that tidbit. And what is life like when you were there? I know things have changed over the last several, what, two decades. We had Mugabe in office. I think he passed away. What was life like when you were growing up when there was probably more of a stability? What things did you do? Food, culture, you know, what's the music like? I actually don't know what Zimbabwean music would be like. And then what language aside from English do you guys speak? So I grew up in a middle-class family in Harare and this, which is the capital. My mother is a nurse. My father is a teacher. He's retired now, but they're very like middle-class jobs. And they were fortunate enough right after independence, right after Zimbabwe became Zimbabwe, that they were quite a few people who were fleeing the suburbs. A lot of like your white Rhodesians were starting to flee the country. They weren't sure what that was going to look like. And they happened to be these homes that were in uh, fairly nice neighborhoods that came on the market for pretty cheap. And because my parents happened to have gotten the opportunity to be educated when most other people during that time hadn't, they were able to snatch a home that they wouldn't be able to afford in this day and age at all. But so I grew up in a suburban neighborhood in Harare. But I also got to uh, travel a lot. I have a huge extended family and I would spend a lot of time at my grandmother's house. She lives in Bulawayo, uh, which is more high density or like what people would call kind of your ghetto area. And I'd spend like months at a time with her and with my cousins. We'd have trips again to the village. So I feel like my childhood is a little bit of everything. Like when people think of like stereotypical like life in the village or like life in like your high density areas, like strong memories of both. I also have like a childhood that isn't what people would typically think about when they think of, of Africa. Cause again, I was a suburban kid growing up in like a previously all white neighborhood that of course, by the time I grew up, it wasn't all white food. Gosh, so many great memories. Even now, right now, I always try to make sure I have like fruit trees and have a little garden. But my father would always make sure that he grew pretty much like think of a vegetable or fruit. I probably had it in our backyard. I would eat fresh mangoes, climb up trees, fresh guavas. If it was um, time for dinner, would go pick the few tomatoes that you need. If you want like a carrot or two, like everything was fresh from the garden, which is kind of, yeah, it's, it's, so anytime I'm 
I'm out here, if I get a chance to like start some of my own garden, I always do because all of those things remind me of home, but just really unique flavors, really unique spices. Sometimes my dad would have like a chicken run and he'd like kill his own chicken. So you'd have like fresh chickens as well. And then, I don't know, music is so hard, but it's it's a whole range because you have some of your more traditional music. And I think that the instruments that comes to mind for more like music nerds, when we think of Zimbabwe and what's unique to Zimbabwe is what's called Mbira. That's a little bit more on the traditional side. But I also grew up with like old Shauna hymns because my parents were Christian and like go to church and they're these like hymns, but they're in Shauna. And then like on the same side, there's also a lot of like growing music, right? Just with like the Western influence, you, I mean, think of a genre. There's probably like a few emerging Zimbabwean artists as well who will try to merge, of course, the language, maybe a few of the traditional instruments, but could be rap, could be hip hop or R&B. But yeah, it's been pretty, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty eclectic culture all around. Right. And from what I know, most Zimbabweans speak English, right? Is that taught in school as well as perhaps the tribal language? Yeah. I want to say the official language is 16 (laughs) different languages. Yeah, it's pretty diverse. Most people will speak one of two, though, Joshana, which is what I speak, and also taught in school. So throughout from the time I was in first grade, five or six, I was learning to read and write in English while also learning to read and write in Shana, which is my native language. There's also Ndebele, which is kind of like, I guess, the second biggest group. And they're completely different languages. It's not like they are slightly related or anything. And Ndebele is... Well, where my grandmother grew up in Palau, that's the language that's mostly spoken. So even though my mother is Shana and my grandmother are Shana because they lived in Palau, they they spoke a lot more in Debele. So all of those school holidays when I was hanging out at, at my grandmother's house, I ended up picking up a little bit. So I'm not fluent by any means, but I at least know enough to be able to get by if I needed to. So those are two main languages, two main tribal languages. And then there's like a lot more. I think there is just so much to be discovered of the continent, the African continent, that I feel like is never shared in the press. And it's just so hidden in the dark. And I mean, I think I came across a gentleman who was trying, or several people lately that we've had so much social media influence and people creating content of just really sharing about what the continent is about and and so forth. But there's so much to be discovered, I think, that is just hidden and just never really shared just the very how do I say media bites that you hear a lot of times and the continent is huge and so diverse as you underlined earlier so I'm wondering what is your is there an arrival story for you about what brings you to the United States and what was the experience you know leaving from Zimbabwe coming all the way across the side of the pond as they say yeah So for some reason, when I was in high school, I knew I wanted to study abroad and I already spoke English. So initially I was looking and applying for scholarships in Australia and the UK, the US. But then I think it was the year before I graduated, I stumbled upon this really cool program called USEP. That is, it's like the United States Students Achievers Program. It was run at the time by the US Embassy in Harare. And what they would do is find students with really good grades and the number would be pretty small. They'd pick like 
20 to 30 each year. And then they'd walk you through applying for SATs, like how do you study for them? They'd help you find, so they didn't give you funding, but they helped you find schools that would provide full, like full ride scholarships if your grades were good enough and your scores were good enough. So I became plugged into that organization, which I still am to this very day. I still help a bunch of students who are still coming every year. Like it's a really small group, but it's a really well-connected group. So I found myself accepted into this program. And for some reason, I'd already decided I wanted to go to pharmacy school. So I applied only to pharmacy schools and specifically like six-year pharmacy schools. And through the process of all of that, I ended up getting uh, the most funding from Drake University, which is this small private university in Des Moines, Iowa. That was my first time like on a plane, my first time out of Africa. And I went from Harare to, to Iowa, which was quite jarring. When you mentioned the cold specifically, like I always ask because people are like, oh, like what were like the biggest culture shock moments and, and all of that? And, and they, I mean, there were quite a few, but the one time where I remember like breaking down, like crying myself to sleep and like just being like, this is the worst decision ever. What was I thinking? It wasn't because I missed my family or like food or anything. It's because I was cold. <laughs> it was just so cold. I'm like, this is a bad idea. And I just like cried myself to like the following morning. So yes, the cold was probably like the biggest change for me during that transition. And I get later on, we'll talk about other culture shocks that you may have had over your time here. But wow, is that program specifically only for Zimbabwe? I've never came across it. So it started in Zimbabwe. The founder is, she's American, She but she married a Zimbabwean. They met in college and then after college, they moved back to Zimbabwe. So she's lived in Zimbabwe for 20 plus years, raised her kids in Zimbabwe. She's fluent in Shona now, but she always says that she like met her husband and thought, oh my gosh, he's so unique and is smart and has all this opportunity and he cares about his family and is always supporting them and there's this rich culture And then so she marries the guy and she moves back home. And then she's like, she gets back to Zimbabwe and she's like, wait a minute, there's hundreds of you, Uh, which is always funny, like when she tells the story. So like she thought, well, if you could make it end up with your PhD and just be able to help lift a whole generation up, like we could multiply like your impact and be able to do more of this. So she started it in Zimbabwe, but I'm pretty sure it's in a few other countries now. I'm going to, I don't want to say the wrong countries off the top of my head, but I know that she is in at least probably at the very minimum, five other countries, which has just helped to replicate that same program. And on the continent, on the African continent, I'm I'm assuming. Okay, very good. It says that you said that you worked with the embassy. So it's not an embassy per se program. It's she started this program and worked in collaboration with the embassy to get the information that she needed and so forth, as well as like the visa support and all of that is what I'm wondering. Yeah, she was an embassy employee. She worked for the U.S. embassy. So she started the program as an offshoot of the embassy. But then as it grew, it kind of took on a whole life, a life of its own. So she ended up branching off. And now it's like a nonprofit that's on its own. But when I first got in, she was a U.S. embassy employee that decided, you know what, would love to do this and got the program up and running. Okay, that's awesome. That's a that's a great initiative. And I'm sure... I don't know if you know the numbers of students who've come through the program since that. Were you one of the first? Well, her husband. Was her husband one yeah. of the first folks? Uh, no, her husband was, she just happened to meet him. He had come, I don't know how he, he had come, but uh, she started it. I think my group was the 
like fifth or sixth cohort. For Zimbabwe alone, I think our network is probably at least 400 students. And it's so cool to like see, I think I'm always so like impressed and challenged when I see what USAP students have done. Like they're some of the most impressive people I know. You have, you know, everything from like Harvard MDs who have all these special specialties to people who work at like Google and YouTube to bankers on Wall Street and Goldman Sachs. But it's like you pick the brightest kids, like the kids who have like really, really great grades and you help give them a chance and they're just so hungry to be able to learn and like adjust that. I'm always like, somebody should do a documentary on new sub students because like every time I meet one, I'm like, wow, like, yeah, they're just so impressive when you get to meet with them. Oh, that's amazing. What was it like kind of getting settled as a student? I imagine you didn't have anybody on the side, aside from perhaps relationships that the program might have connected you to. What was it like in the first, you know, aside from being freezing cold and crying, how did you adjust and get through college for those six years? Yeah, man, um, I always say like my colleges are probably some of like my hardest years. People are like, oh, like college is so fun. Let's go back. I'm like, no, I think it was I had like $70 in my pocket. That's what my family could fundraise to help me start. So everything from like, you know, just books like I couldn't afford a lot of my textbooks and I would go to the library try to borrow certain books but then of course you can only borrow it for so long and sometimes if I didn't have a textbook like a friend would like maybe give me a book and I would literally take pictures with like my phone you know you still have some of those flip phones and I'll take pictures with my phone of like the questions or things I'm supposed to be reading and try to study off that like that's how I got through got through school I was able to get you know a couple of on-campus jobs but again like as an F1 student which is like the visa that you have you're only allowed to work 20 hours a week and it can only only be on-campus jobs. So it's not like I could, I don't know, get an internship somewhere else or like go do something else. So I worked mostly at the front desk of like our dorm and just had to make it work. Like, you know, be on a crazy budget and find ways to kind of I don't know, just still get along, uh, get by. And I think one of the hardest things for me specifically is like my scholarship would cover like all of my tuition and so forth, but didn't exactly cover like room and board and stuff. So like through school, you'd always be like, okay, I need to be a resident assistant. I need to like anything you can do just to try to get that like room and board covered, especially when you can't work that much. So it was just a lot of trying to get by stringing things along thankfully I mean for things like some holidays and so forth like I made a couple of really great friends and some families who like took me in so if they have like Thanksgiving thing or something then they'd be like hey like come over like come spend like Thanksgiving with us so ended up with like a few of those relationships but everything from just financially trying to make it by but also just like culturally you're the weird kid you don't know how anything works right like you everything is is new to you and even little things that people don't think about like I don't know if there might be like inside jokes or like references about I don't know the cowboys or that you have no idea what any of that stuff is or if people talk about like a cartoon character of something they used to watch when they were younger you you may not necessarily have the same reference point so you feel like you're always a little bit lost in conversation so yeah I think those were just those were some some hard years just both on an emotional level trying to get by and then also just missing your family and 
again, when I was in college is when most of Zimbabwe is like, you know, economic downfall started to happen as well. So you also have all this family stuff that's happening, like, while you are so far away from home. Did you find a community of like folks from Zimbabwe, maybe from the African continent or, you know, how did you build community or some sort of support aside from the friends who are inviting you home from school? So I did find an international students program. So I did find a few other Africans. Um, there actually were a handful of Zimbabweans or I think maybe three others by the time that I was there through school and, and so forth. So, uh, and some of those remain like some of my best friends today. And then again, I had a roommate one year who was from Ghana. So you, I mean, you'd find people who going through similar things or, you know, have gone through similar things at, at a certain point. And that definitely provided some level of relief. But as you can imagine, it's it's Iowa, right? So you're, it's not the state that's known for the most, for its diversity, right? So that was also a jarring experience for me because you're coming from a place where the concept of being a minority really doesn't exist in your head because everybody looks like you, like everyone speaks your language. If you turn on the TV, everyone from the president to the, I, I don't know, like whether you're physicians, ministers, everybody that you see around you is, is black and that's the world you sort of live around. And it's weird to go from that to a state like Iowa, where like you sort of stick out because you are black. And that was also just a really like, odd like shift in identity or even just how I think about like race wow I would love to hear more but let's move along (laughs) let's move along so you're going through school you came over you deliberately signed up for a six-year program what was the intent what was your goal what was your in quotes American dream you know for being here what you know what was your big thing that you want to achieve this you want to some I heard somebody say they wanted to build a bridge from the U.S. back to another country what was your big goal coming over my big goal was I wanted to graduate and then move back home and I wanted to start my own pharmacy try to navigate just like whatever the pharmaceutical industry looked like in Zimbabwe, provide more medications. Because I already knew because my mom was a nurse that some of the treatments were not always available in the country and people had to maybe go to South Africa to find treatment. So the grand scheme when I first moved was graduate, maybe work for a few years, start something in Zimbabwe, and then move back home and really like see this dream through. Okay. And I'm wondering, you know, were there any specific challenges that came along you completing your six years and things obviously shift because you're yeah. here. Or, yeah. or did you go back and then you came back? What was the story behind that? Yeah. So I actually started a cold impact pharmacy. It was kind of this thing I started, which was like a pharmacy set in Harare. And because there's so much of the diaspora that supports their family back home, I think the stats at the time were something like 4 million Zimbabweans lived abroad and helped send money to their families, especially because Zimbabwe is just going through a really tough time with the economy. So I'd started this company and it was registered both in Zimbabwe and in the US with the idea being, okay, set up like all of your banking here, set up Square, PayPal, all these things that aren't readily available in Zimbabwe so people could get on the website, 
order whatever medications they needed. So you'd still need a prescription like from Zimbabwe, make sure we're going through like all the Zimbabwean laws, but you provide all the prescriptions and then the payment system would be based off the US and a lot of like the banking to make some of that easier. And then we would then try to figure out the wholesale system and like, where do we order these medications and so forth. So I had that going for a good two years. And the idea was that I would kind of get it set up and then I'd move back home. But I think my biggest challenge is there are two main things. One, like I was funding this whole thing from like my normal day-to-day job, right? Because it's not like I had like venture capital funding or something. So it was literally, okay, here's my paycheck. Let's pay all my bills, then figure out how to pay everybody in Zimbabwe and figure out how to pay rent and like all of the other like initial capital. But I was passionate about it. So I was like happy to be able to do that. But I think just after a good two years, Zimbabwe's economy just was not getting stable at all. Like the just with the inflation, it was hard to be able to keep up. But more than that, I think what was the hardest thing was just trying to go through the bureaucracy and the red tape of you want to order a certain type of medication and you are not allowed to say maybe order it in bulk and you can only get it pursuant to a prescription. And it's not efficient to order that way when you're trying to, like when you have to fly medication in and there's certain medications that just were not registered in the country. And even just trying to get those medications registered was like a whole new like hurdle. It, it just, the red tape made it so hard for me to try to make this work. Cause a lot of times you're just bumping against all these like a cake, rules. I mean, some of the rules that I was like reading, like just code of that applied as law are like from way back in like the early eighties. And some of them even say very still, which is like old Harare, which is like colonials and I'm like, no one has taken the time to really update all of these. We're still operating in the same. And I think at some point I ended up just kind of getting burnt out because I was spinning in wheels. I'm working a full-time job. I'm trying to make this happen. The country's falling apart with that economy. And I'm like, there's no way this can be stable. And in addition to that, you have all of these hurdles just with the way regulation was. And I decided, you know what? I am going to take a break. I'm going to step away from this for now. Still a very big passion of mine and maybe at at a different place under different circumstances, I might go back and do that again. But I did give it a try for a couple of years at least. So it sounded like you've graduated, got an LPT, which led to a full-time job, right? Because that's usually sometimes not the case for a lot of F1s. They have to go back home and figure things out and other opportunities to get a permanent stay here. So that's awesome. Yeah, no, I was just saying, yeah, I was fortunate enough to be able to get into work and start building my career right away. So I know it worked out a lot easier for me than it typically would be for most other people. Yes, that's awesome. Okay, my goodness. So right out of college, you took on this huge challenge of starting a pharmacy. It sounds kind of like a mail order type of setup where you're trying to help people on the other side get access to medications that are not readily available in the country and the difficulty doing that, my goodness. All right, so you finished, you tried this, you just said, okay, this is wearing me out. What next? What came next for you? I think at the time, I didn't necessarily have like a, a grand vision of what was next. I think I'd just been so stressed and burnt out through that whole period that I was happy to just kind of keep my day job and not have to worry about all the other things that were revolving around me. And I, I think I was just in a more of like, get through what you need to right now. I think I realize that I've always had like a passion for operations and how things work. And even though I can do the clinical work of being a pharmacist, like 
that whole process of trying to set up Impact Pharmacy and the processes and how to make things work and building that operation was just really exciting for me. So I ended up taking a role still with CVS, which who's who I worked for after I graduated in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it was an operations role. It was a district lead role where I had a group of 20 pharmacies that I could run the behind the scenes operation. And I really liked that. And I, I mean, even to this day with the company, I ended up leaving CVS at some point, but even now I'm in an operations role because I think part of what working with Impact Pharmacy did is it sort of showed me that I have this passion for operations and being able to kind of help put the building blocks in place. But yeah, so I ended up moving to the Bay Area, worked with CVS for a while, got burnt out (laughs) again, just after a while of doing that. And I think in hindsight, though, it wasn't just like a work burnout, but I remember that was the same year that you had like so much going on in the U.S. politically, like just a lot of social justice stuff. It's the title story for my book is Send Her Back. It's the year that, you know, you had like your Trump crowd chanting Send Her Back to a woman who's also Black, who's African, who looks like me. And, you know, people talk about like representation and, and it matches both in like the positive sense, but in the negative sense. Like when you see people who maybe share, look like you or like share certain backgrounds similar to yours being treated with hate, like that also has an effect on you, right? So there was just a lot going on at that time. So I took a career break. And during that break, I went back home for a while because I'd also only been home for like a week at a time, like two weeks at a time. And this allowed me to be able to spend a little bit more time with my family. So I took a break and it was during this break that I wrote most of the stories that are in my book and in this short story collection. So while we are there, could you go ahead and just share a bit more about the book and as much as you'd like to share? Yeah. And again, for a little bit of additional context, it's not like I just I had just started to write. I'd always loved to write. It's just that when you grow up in a country like Zimbabwe, you pick your careers based not on what you love, but what's practical for you to be able to make a living. So even though as a child, I like loved to write and did all of that, it never even crossed my mind that writing could be something I, I could do with my life. But even through pharmacy school, when like Drake is a liberal arts university, so it would make us take... Uh, electives that we liked. And I would always pick creative writing classes, but it was a hobby. It was something I did just as an outlet. Um, And then when I moved to San Francisco, I joined the San Francisco Writers Workshop and I would always write these pieces, take, take it to the group, like would read them, they'd critique them, give them back to me. But it was just a hobby. It was something I loved to do, but like never thought I'd put my work out there. Yeah. So like when I ended up taking this career break, it's not like I was starting to write for the first time. I think I just started uh, trying to find ways of putting together the immigrant experiences, the woman experiences, experiences about, I don't know, just being a woman of color. So like issues of identity. So I started writing these stories, just pulling the emotion, a lot of the emotion from my own emotion, from things I've gone through, even though like I'm the book is the protagonists are like fiction characters, but a lot of the emotion that goes through is like real emotion. And I tried to paint a lot of stories from either it was people I knew in college or people in the in communities. As I like moved to different places, I'd always find myself drawn to immigrant communities. And they were so like such a depth of stories. 
and different circumstances that people were in. So started writing this this book and it's a mix of, you know, there are some stories about struggling a little bit more with like your immigration status and trying to figure out how to make things work. There are stories about the burden of supporting your family back home. There are stories about just going back home and visiting and realizing that either you've changed or the place has changed or you've both changed, but you don't fit in quite the way you feel like you should or you used to. But then also when you're in the US, you're not American. So you don't feel like you fit in. So now you're in this weird limbo. There's just dating stories. Like when you move and maybe you're dating someone from a different race or just different culture and background, being able to figure out like, okay, is this like normal couple stuff or is this like cultural stuff or like, are they a jerk? Am I not understanding? (laughs) It just adds this additional layer of like complexity to dating life as well. So I like, you have stories about that that are a little bit more funny and lighthearted because I was traveling when I took like that second break after CVS. I also have like travel stories, just traveling as a black woman. And some of my trips were solo. Like I was in Ecuador on my own as a black woman. And I like sort of like, pull on some of those those experiences as well so it's like I would love to say it's like this rich it's this book that's full of rich immigrant characters all of them black all of them women and they are just at different levels in their life some are a lot more self-assured they're doing their thing in the corporate world and great and then others are like I just got here I have no idea what's going on and you know uh, trying to kind of figure that out so yeah Wow. I'm listening to you and I can see myself as I went, I've gone through some of my immigrant experience too, about crying because I was freezing and trying to just unravel, like, what is this? I don't understand. I'm confused. I'm exhausted. Like, can somebody please explain (laughs) to me what it is that I'm experiencing? It can be overwhelming. So I'm looking forward to getting my hand on a copy of that book and getting into some of those stories. It sounds very interesting to me. So congratulations. Um, How long has it been out and how do people find the book? Yeah, it's been out, I think we're all coming up to month two. So it's still fairly new. The original release date was July 25th, but you can find it pretty much anywhere books are sold. You can find it on Amazon. If you prefer an independent bookstore, if you go to bookshop.com, you can pull up your independent, closest independent store and bookstore, and they can, you can order it from there and it'll get shipped there. You can find it in Barnes & Noble, or if you prefer an audiobook, it's also an Audible if you prefer to listen to that. But yeah, if you just look up, send her back in other stories, you should be able to find a copy, whichever way you prefer to read. Awesome. Excellent. So I'm wondering, have you been able to show up as your authentic immigrant self? You landed a very important job out of college after six years. Is it district director of uh, several CVS pharmacies? I can imagine the depth of responsibility and, you know, being here alone. And how did you manage that? And, you know, how did you show up as your authentic self and maneuver just being yourself culturally and learning the U.S. space, you know, during that season? Yeah, (laughs) I mean, I I think it was a journey and it still is. And I can see the progression where over time, I think I've just become more confident, more unapologetic, more sure of myself. And there are times when I think now I definitely show up a lot more as my authentic self. And I think the writing has a lot to do with that because it allows me to be able to process. And when you see something through the lens of what a character is going through and like ways that maybe characters might mute themselves, might be thinking one thing, but not say it just because, you know, they're already exhausted with everything else going on or because 
they're lost in the context and you realize, ha it's really not as big a deal. And you really could like, you're, you're rooting for your characters to like stand up and be their full authentic selves. And I see myself in different seasons where I didn't always show up in that way, but I don't know. I think the best I knew how I definitely did. But again, uh, even as uh, diverse as the, the Bay Area is compared to Iowa, like they still, I'm trying to think, I think the whole time I was, within that district, I don't think I had a single black pharmacist or pharmacy manager working there with me, The everybody else that was within my chain of leadership within the Bay Area, like none of them were like black women or black really for that matter. So, and sometimes you get tired of just explaining or always having to bring the context in. And even though maybe you do have an opinion for something, there were times where I found myself kind of like taking a sit back. But I've also tried to like, even in my current role, do a lot more stuff with DEI. So whether it's like, if I find somebody that I can mentor, or I don't know, right now we're recruiting from Howard University to try to get more pharmacists of color within the company I work for now, leading a group about women empowerment. So I'm, I think I'm now doing more and more just so I can I don't know, not only continue to grow my own voice, but help other women, other people of color, other immigrants be able to maybe not go through as much as I did, or maybe doesn't take them nearly as long uh, to to be confident in their own skin. But yeah, no, it was definitely a journey. I can't say I did it all perfectly, but to the best of what I had the energy and strength for and like what I was confident enough for in that season, I think. I think we're all on the same journey and have to give ourselves grace because at times we only respond with the knowledge that we have for that moment you know and as we grow we get new information we understand things better and respond differently or at higher levels so so many of my you know I know I'm on that journey and and my listeners have been sharing with me as well that they're so appreciative of these stories because they can hear other people's struggles and the information or little tidbits that they're using to deal with a lot of the unspoken rules that we have to live by here in the United States. I'm wondering, was there anything across the culture that was shocking for you? Like any culture shock aside from the cold and the, being the only, you know, person of color or, or dark skinned person in a lot of the work areas that you've been having to deal with? I think for me, the biggest thing is I grew up in a culture where you sort of share everything like and it's everything is all about community and being there for each other for better or for worse I'm sure there there are times where that comes with its own baggage but the U.S. is just really an individualistic society it's almost like you do you each man for themselves like don't cross my path this is my bubble and like learning having come from like a community where I think the outlook of how, just how you deal with life, regardless of what the situation is, you sort of come at life with a very different lens and having to now enter into this lens and try to navigate whether it's friendships and the expectations or it's like relationships and dating. And like, yeah, that I think that alone was jarring for me. And I think it also made it a little bit harder for me to even try to figure out how do I find community when I think for the most part, like the the culture in the U.S. tends more to be like I am first and then like, you know, everything else comes comes around me. Whereas, you know, these words that you probably like have heard or will hear, which is like Ubuntu, right, which is like we're in this together kind of. And I think that was probably like the one thing I noticed right away that was 
like most jarring for me. Yes, yes, I get that. So is there anything that you know now that you wish that you did at the start of your journey, whether it's from leaving the Zimbabwe or when you first arrived, that probably would have made thing, your experience completely different? Gosh, I feel like there's so much. And a lot of it is kind of dark. I try to document some of it in the book as well. But it's everything from, I think, giving myself permission to rest and not feel like I need to carry the world's burdens. Like I need to like solve everything that like my family is going through or like, I don't know, just being kinder to myself where there are times when I have a little bit of time off and I'm like, oh, I'm going to pick up a shift and I'm going to work and I'm going to try to make this happen. In the grand scheme of things, that one shift probably wouldn't have made been what makes the difference in my life. And I'd, I probably would have been a lot less stressed if I'd been able to kind of allowed myself time to breathe and just take care of myself and acknowledge that it's okay that that you're struggling, right? And it's not that you're failing, but this is part, this is a huge part of your journey. I think also just like the whole idea of identity, I think I've gone back and forth for a while. And one thing I tell people as they move is, yeah, this will happen. Like you always, we're in essence, like products of our environment and we pick up things in our environment whether we like it or not. And your identity will shift the way you see the world shifts and you're learning and growing. And so it is inevitable that there are times when you're in certain conversations with people from home or you go back home and you feel like you don't fit in, even though that's exactly what you feel now. And you sort of tend to romanticize what like all the things back home were. And I think where I've found like the peace for myself is that like kind of thinking of my identity as I am a Zimbabwean living in the US. So I don't have to fit in to like be entire to be like American or like feel like I relate with any of that. But it's also okay if I go home and the things in my mentality and my thinking that have also shifted. I also like it's it's not a condemnation or me losing my culture or my roots or anything. And finding this middle ground of like my identity is somewhere in between and that's okay like that might not look like anyone else in the world right like there's there's like a handful of Zimbabweans living in in the U.S. who maybe share exactly the same experiences but I don't feel torn because I don't feel like I need to 100% belong to any group I'm unique and I have these crazy sets of life experiences that just make me different and just being able to find the peace there I think if I'd known that sooner and I'd found peace with that sooner probably would have helped quite a bit with some of the identity questions that I had growing. Probably also something around like learning to trust my gut with certain things. Like I talk about, you know, like some of the, these dating stories or like where you're like, I don't know what's going on or like who's wrong and just being like, okay, if something doesn't like feel right or doesn't look great, like it's okay to take a step back and probably just trust your gut and your instinct on some of these. I think there are definitely times or relationships where I like made excuses or like stayed too long when, because I wasn't sure it's just like a cultural difference, like what the heck is going on. But again, like in my gut, I knew. And I think just being able to like trust that and say, Hey, like, and if you need to take a step back or like process, you can do that, but it's okay to trust your instinct and to trust your gut. So I found that I've been going, as I'm listening to you, it brings to mind, I'm going through a season where I realize that I'm this hybrid of a person, right? So born in Jamaica, spent half of my life there. 
and now second half in the United States. And I'm just, at times I realize just how American I've become. And then at times in certain spaces, I realize just still how Jamaican I am. (laughs) And so we have this term, we say we're Jamaicans, right? So it's this hybrid Uh of this low context, which is the U.S. versus the high context part of our communal culture, which would, in my case, would be Jamaica. And at times I feel like I have these two voices, one on the other shoulder saying, okay, you have to go to the family event, right? You have to please everybody, your dad or whoever, or other people or friends have these expectations of you and you can't not go. Even though on the other side, you're like, no, I'm not going for these X, Y, and Z reasons. And it's like, who do you please? And I find that I constantly (laughs) am battling between this low versus high context culture and deciding who I will be each day. And so I wonder, do you deal with that? You know, like now that you've changed, like, do you have things such as you put in new boundaries where people are expecting you to do certain things because you're the successful one and they're expecting, they have so many expectations of you, whatever there may be. So how do you handle that with, you know, you becoming this hybrid of a person, Zimbabwe versus being here now for a number of years? Yeah. Oh, like uh, now I'm like, okay, I can't wait for you to read my book because I, I also do like talk about that in different contexts. Sometimes it's like smaller, more social engagement type expectations with others. It's like you say it, if you're the most successful one, like they like monetary expectations and this almost guilt to like pull everybody up as well. And like learning how to draw boundaries. I think boundaries were like a really hard, but necessary thing for me to learn, but also not having like guilt for, for some of that. But really, I think the older I get and the more time I give myself to just step back and reflect, the more confident I am in sort of like listening to myself and doing what I know is because ultimately if I'm healthy, everyone else around me is going to be healthier, right? Like I'm more, I'm able to like interact with my community more when I'm not in a stressed, burnt out, or like, I don't know, just grumpy state. So Mm -hmm. learning to kind of feed myself and realizing in the moment, okay, what do I need? And what is something that can slip for now? Okay. If it's the social engagement is like, a cousin's wedding and it's not going to happen again. I'm like, okay, like maybe even if I don't feel like it, we're going to go to that. But if it's like a smaller engagement that I could make up for and it really doesn't change much else, then there will be like a few more of those. I'll decide, you know what? I think I'm going to sit this one out because I need the rest and I'll do that. But like, again, like similar to what you said, I think it's, it's almost a day-to-day like battle of trying to figure out like where you're going to be but also like not wanting to give up either side of your of, of who you are, right? Like you you want to make sure that you remain authentic to your true self and both. Awesome. So we have a new segment called Faux Pas as we get towards the end of our time together. I don't know if you would be, you know, okay with sharing with me if there was a time throughout your time here that you really messed up or you committed a faux pas, you know, just something that was just so socially a no-no in this culture. And, you know, how did you go through that and how did you handle it? How did you overcome that mess up or mistake? Yeah, because the funny thing is, I'm, I'm sure there are so many, but it's like, that's kind of part of the existence, right? Of like all these like little things where I'm like, I don't even know where to start. I think I've just kind of gotten to a point where they almost don't like dwell in it that much because I'm like, yeah, I am socially awkward. I don't know all the rules of life. And so stuff happens. Like, yeah, there was another one like keep it going that's like you being like this weird Zimbabwean but I don't know if I had a little bit more time I'm sure I could probably come up with a really good one that's fine that's fine so how how has your time here 
shaped who you are, who, who the person that you are today? How has that, you know, what the environment you were raised in, your time here in the United States, and, you know, how has that shaped you? And do you have a vision for your future moving forward? Let's say next five, 10 years, what, where do you hope to, do, to be? Perhaps it's going at that pharmacy that you tried a few years back. Yeah, um, I think probably the one thing that I've loved the most and I appreciate the most about like being in the U.S. is there's this idea that you can do what you love. You can be the dreamer. I feel like I have a little bit more permission to dream and go the 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 path that maybe might not be as rational. Whereas like in the Zimbabwean context, it's always like the reason I got into pharmacy to begin with is like, what's practical? How do you make a living? You know, and I sit down with these pharmacists who are like, oh, like I've always wanted to like help people and do all of that. And I was like, that was not my thought process. My thought process is I want to eat and I don't want to be poor. And you sit down, you look at all stuff and you're like, okay, you're good at math and science. Like, what are your options? And then you somehow land with pharmacy, but it wasn't like a necessarily like do what you love, like what started that. And I think now that I'm in this space where I'm writing, I have such a passion for bringing more marginalized voices and just amplifying those voices, like immigrant voices. And I want to write and publish full-time. That's really what I want to do. And I I love healthcare and I'm sure there'll always be part of me that's like dabbles a little bit, but the next five, 10 years, if things go my way or the way I hope they do is I would write more. I would put a lot more time in promoting this book, probably writing something after, continue to find other marginalized authors and like help them be able to amplify their voices. I would do a lot more like social causes, especially around identity and belonging, because that's really where my passion's I've grown, probably mentor a lot more women, a lot more people of color, a lot more immigrants, recently become a lot more intrigued with just the refugee experience. So yeah, I think that's, if things went well, that's, I would, you know, if we met in five years or in 10 years, if I'm not doing this, then I don't know, maybe something else would have changed in my life. But that's probably the one way that my life has shifted the most. And as far as like, what I have been doing and what I hope to do more often. Yes. Awesome. So sounds like you're, you're moving up Maslow's hierarchy (laughs) of needs, right? You're getting to the self-actualization you've put in the work, you're able to provide shelter, food, emotional like safety and all of that. And you're at that top right now where you're like, okay, so I did the pragmatic thing. So now, you know, you, you have the luxury. It is a luxury, right? To be able to say, I'm going to choose to go after something that I'm more passionate about that's more aligned with my personality and perhaps your purpose or calling. And that brings you more joy. That's amazing to get there. So congratulations. And I wish you the very best. And to wrap up, I'm wondering if, you know, we talked about how people can find your book, but do you provide other services that, you know, and people can look you up and find you online if they were to listen and would love to get in touch? Is there something that you'd like to put in a plug for there? Yeah, I mean, you can go to my website, which is munashekaseke.com. Um, I'm sure on the podcast, you'll have my name spelled out. So it's just first name, last name.com. I'm going to put up over the coming months, like events that I might do, if there's other speaking events that I do there as well. Uh, and then also, if you are a an immigrant or like 
you know, somebody from a traditionally marginalized group. I'm working with Mukana Press, which is like the publishing company, just to be able to publish more voices like that. So if you feel like, hey, I really have been doing this writing thing and I, I want to like find an opportunity to tell my story without having to go through the traditional publishing route, which sometimes can be a lot harder for writers of color, then look up Mukana Press as well. And yeah, hopefully we can get you connected and help publish you as well. Awesome. That's awesome. I'm wondering with all the things that that's on your plate, like how do you plan for rest and rejuvenation and self-care with everything that you have to do? As immigrant women, we take so much on our plate. I'm still trying to put boundaries so I can protect my energy, my mental space, my being present with my family. How do you do that to make sure that you're, you know, you're at your best self at any given moment? I think one thing I've learned to do is to also like listen to my body because there are times when I'm exhausted. And even though I have a to-do list and things that I need to do, like (laughs) the pragmatic person in me is always like go, right? Because especially in those college days, you just, you are trying to survive. And so it doesn't matter how you feel, like you always go, which just put me, made me a lot more prone to burnout, even if I'm doing something that I love. So listening to my body when I'm exhausted, when I feel like I need a nap, take the nap and then find ways to be able to like prioritize that, right? Think of your rest as investing in yourself. I think before like rest was more of like you're wasting time. So if you took a nap, it's like, oh, I wasn't productive. But starting to think of that time resting as an investment in yourself, like, oh, I invested in my rest so that I could do a little bit more. So that's probably the biggest way, but also proactively not waiting until my body tells me, hey, I'm tired, I need a break, but also proactively finding like little spots of time. So whether it's, you know, on Sunday evenings, instead of me starting back with work and like emails and trying to get caught up for the week, like Sunday evening is just that day where I might maybe have a glass of wine and I will wind down, get a book that I love, maybe like find a show that you I, I want to watch but I have like little pockets of time like that and, and even during my work day like I usually block out just like a smaller period it's like 30 minutes during my day where I would always work through my lunches and like be multitasking and for those 30 minutes I'm just saying you know what it's my lunch break I'm not going to think of anything work related I'm really just going to like decompress so that when I get back into work again I, I feel much better. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that with us. Well, we thank you so much for your time, Munashe. It's been a pleasure going on this journey with you. I look forward to getting into your book. I think your publisher had mentioned that she might be sending a copy to me. I'm not sure if she did already, but I can't wait to get into it. And listeners, if uh, you would like to find her again, her book is called Send Her Back and Other Stories by Munashe Kaseki. We'll have it in her in the show notes for you. And when we do our uh, social media postings, we will put that out there for you to find and support her. Thank you so much for your time. We wish you the much success with everything that you do. And I hope to meet you soon at some point. Yeah, that would be so great. Have a great afternoon. You do the same. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for joining us again on another episode. And walk good, stay healthy. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, 
Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence. <laughs>